Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's always an honor to be asked to speak. And I give honor today to God, to the ministry, and in particular to Pastor Mayo and his vision to provide this meeting. I told him personally, and I'll tell you publicly, Brother Mayo has a kinning effect on me. He does things beyond my range of sight. He sees things I don't see. Uh, he challenges me to do more and to be better. And I thank him for that. I've had the privilege of being here the last couple of years, and I feel very undeserving uh, to be here today. I don't have the best memory, but I think I spoke to you about the slide, Solomon, on one occasion. On the other one, I think I talked to you about confabulation, and uh, I'm going to try and not confabulate today by the grace of God. There's, of course, an amazing amount of details that go into a meeting of this nature. And the Mayo family and Cornerstone Church uh, do an absolute incredible job. And everything that you do is first class. The bag in the room with the logo, the cup, the pen, uh, everything. little first class touch. The meal room, the decor, there are attention to detail is truly amazing. The likenesses uh, in this room back here are doing things that I've never seen done before. Uh, what a tremendous effort. Everything is cutting edge. Everything is trend setting, in my opinion. And Cornerstone Church, we applaud you. It is noticed and appreciated. And I wonder if we could just take a moment and give a, a hand to Cornerstone Church. Everyone involved, thank you. Thank you. We are sincere. Thank you. I'm very happy to have friends here and people from our local church. This has become a wonderful place for us to come. I think we've got about a fourth of our congregation here, some 25% of our People are here at this meeting, and I'm very happy for them to be here. And there's also some very long-time ministry friends here as well. Certainly don't want to name everyone, but uh, this morning I was privileged to have breakfast with Brother Dansby, and it made me realize how far back friendships go. I was the youth leader in my home church, and he was in my youth group. Praise the Lord. So you know that's long-term friends. And then Brother Dehot is a very special friend of mine. See him here uh, down from Canada. So some real special friends here today. I want to say thank you for uh, their attendance. I, I want to give honor today to all the other speakers. Last night's message and the effect it produced in the altar, uh, incredible. And uh, hopefully you will leave this meeting saying, my name is Elizabeth. My name is Elizabeth. And to get that revelation and concept, thank you very much, Brother Bass. I personally uh, eagerly await to hear the other speakers. I can tell you uh, without question to a man, they are renowned in our world. 
Brother Wilson, Brother Holmes, and Brother Booker, uh, I don't say this lightly, they are legends among us in our day and age. And uh, it's absolutely. And Brother Jackson and Brother Urshan are voices being used by God in this day to herald great truths to our generation. And each of the speakers you will hear uh, from this point forward are gifted men. They are dynamic and they are anointed. And I look forward to each and every service. This morning, right or wrong, I feel like I am speaking to a very special group of people. I've spoken at enough meetings to ascertain that this is most likely, if not absolutely, going to be the least attended session of the meeting. First of all, it's the earliest in the day, and it's on the first day of the first day service. And so it is the nature of life for some people to sleep in, arrive late. Others will only be able to attend later because of jobs and schedules. Understandable. I understand all of that. So that tells me that those that are here today are the diehards. They are the spiritual ninjas. The zealots. The fanatics. The radicals. The people who spiritually overdose. So I'm excited to get to preach to you, and I'm very glad to see you today. I mean that. So thank you for being here on the service that will most likely be the least attended. But let's make up our minds right now to tear the spiritual roof off the house today. See, that's what I'm telling you. They're, they're the, this service is the kooks, the crazies, the, the diehards, the ones that... I heard, I heard Brother Spell say a few days ago, I thought it was very well said, I'd like to repeat it. He said, you need a strong foundation, but you also need a roof that you can break through. In Mark's gospel, they broke through the roof. And the man that came with his back on a bed left with a bed on his back. So stay on your foundation, but tear the roof off. Don't put a limit on how high you can go in this service. If you have your Bibles, I will be reading from the book of Hebrews today. There are some books outside that are being uh, published and printed by apostolic authors. You're welcome to peruse them. They are for sale. Uh, the profit from this goes back to printing more books. It's a nonprofit effort, but uh, one of those is on the book of Hebrews. It's available outside. If you love this book and want to read some commentary by apostolic authors, uh, it's out there along with others as well. I had a very humorous moment on an airplane a few weeks ago. I was flying somewhere, and I was privileged to be in first class. They upgraded me complimentarily, and I went to sit down, and there was what appeared to me to be an elderly lady sitting in the seat 
that I was supposed to sit in. And uh, when I walked up, she said, do you mind changing seats? And I said, I'd be happy to do that, ma'am. And uh, so she sat down, and it's, I, I'm not much of a talker on airplanes. I'm not really much of a talker at all, but certainly not on airplanes. And uh, she, she just immediately turned in her seat and looked at me and said, so what do you think about Trump? I mean, she said it so loud and so aggressive, the, the whole first-class cabin was now. Man. So I backpedaled and I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> she said, I think he's bipolar. I think he's schizophrenic. I think he's, she went on this list of psychiatric terms, all these things that he is. I said, Really? So what do you do for a living? She said, I'm a psychiatrist. I said, wow. So how many people in your practice? She said, right at 300. I have 300 full-time patients. I said, uh, you diagnose those people? She said, oh, yeah. I said, you diagnose some of them as bipolar? She said, oh, every day. Said you diagnose some of them as schizophrenic? She said, every day. I said, interesting. I said, uh, have you ever met Mr. Trump? She said, no. I said, have you ever talked to him personally? She said, no. I said, do you diagnose your patients the way you just diagnosed Mr. Trump? I'm not exaggerating. She was aggressive, sitting on the edge of the chair, half in my chair. She went just like this. She said, what do you do for a living? Now, everybody's still listening. The whole first class is still listening to all this. I said, well, I am a, I'm a, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. And I could see the smug look on her face. So she said, really, how much education do you have? So I told her, and that helped. She, so she's backpedaling, trying to gain the upper hand after her embarrassing moment of being challenged. And, and their, their gold standard is being published. That's the academic gold standard. And so she very condescendingly said, so have you been published? I said, yes, ma'am. She's sinking more and more as she goes. <laughs> she said, how many books have you written? I was very It's the only time in my life I ever felt proud of it. I said, 14 to be exact. <laughs> so she was, she, uh, it was just a funny moment. So she said, what exactly are they? So I said, well, let me just show you. And I got my iPad. I said, they're on Amazon here in case you'd like to order one. And to my uh, surprise, she said, I'm going to. And her last gasping straw was, she said, all of yours are about the Bible? I said, yes, ma'am. That's all I've written about. She said, 
She was a Jewish woman. She said, well, have you written about the book of Ecclesiastes? Just a shot in the dark. I said, actually, I have. And I said, I'm going to send you that book complimentarily, and I want you to give me your professional psychiatric opinion of that book. She said, I'll do it. So I sent it to her, and she wrote me back a nice letter. And this is why I'm encouraging apostolic people to write, because we're not any different than anyone else. I could read you her nice handwritten letter that she sent me. She said, not only am I impressed with the book, but I'm going to take it to my next meeting of my psychiatric friends and show them some things that this is really the philosophy of life that we need to be living. So you never know. All you apostolics, you need to write. The world needs to hear what we have to say. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and 1. I'm going to read the first two verses and then drop down to verse number 22. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Down to verse number 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Verse 23, to the general assembly, church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. I want to take that last phrase, that spirits of just men made perfect, and acknowledge there is a gallery of great witnesses around us today. And by the help of the Lord, I'd like to speak to you on the subject, how to be the saint your pastor wants you to be. How to be the saint. Shake hands with somebody and say, I truly want to be the saint my pastor wants me to be. And then you may be seated. Many years ago, I was down in the southern part of the country, and uh, some of you may have been there. I think Brother and Sister Wilson might have even been at this meeting, but Merle Ewing was the speaker. He has gone on to be with the Lord now, always dynamic speaker, great singer, good Christian man. And before he spoke that morning, he gave a very brief illustration, just maybe a moment or two, very, very brief. But I was so impacted with his illustration, carried it for many years and thought about it. And about eight years ago, I decided to revisit that and then write it in my own words. So here is my story based on Brother Ewing's illustration in my own words. I read. 
It happened in a small Midwest town in a rural area. A music teacher had a young student brought in for the first lesson by a hopeful parent. By the second lesson, the old music teacher was pretty sure. And by the third and fourth lesson, all hesitation was gone. It was a fact. The music teacher had a prodigy on his hands. The young man was a rare talent that only comes along once in a lifetime, if even then. The old teacher was wise enough to see it and appreciate it. He determined to give it his best and then pass on the young prodigy to those who would continue and eventually finish the training of this talented young man. The first few years of the young musician's life were carefully nurtured by the wise music teacher. The teacher saw and knew even more than the student as the student's career grew. He saw the potential of this young man. Finally, the day came for the prodigy to move on and accept scholarships at prestigious schools. The old teacher followed his now famous student as the student's career became the stage of the world. At a very early age, the student became world famous. He had now played all the major venues of the world. He had played London, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Moscow, and Amsterdam. The entire European theater had been played to sell out crowds. Then came the American tour, New York, Madison Square Garden, Chicago, Carnegie Hall, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Seattle. The musician's fame now reached around the globe. A tour to the Far East was the next stop. Next up were Tokyo, Singapore, Seoul, Jakarta, and Beijing. One day on a whim, the musician decided he wanted to go back and do a concert for his hometown. He wanted to recognize the humble beginnings of his childhood. The arrangements were made. An auditorium was rented in the small community where he hailed from. The night was set. He walked out on stage to a crowded auditorium and just the grand piano on the stage. The applause was loud as he made his debut. As he smiled and looked around, he looked up in the balcony. And there was only one person in the balcony. Although his hair was now white with age, the musician recognized his old music teacher and joy filled his heart. He decided tonight would be his finest performance. He played that night like a man possessed. When he finished, he received a standing ovation from the crowd. When he lifted his eyes and looked at the man in the balcony, there was no response. The old teacher just sat there with his arms folded. The musician frowned. Standing on the stage to thunderous applause, the musician made a decision. He wanted his old music teacher's approval, so he decided to play it again and to do it even better. He announced to the crowd that it was unusual, but he was going to play it again. They cheered raucously. This time, there was no doubt. He had never played it better 
anywhere in the world. He was tired. Sweat ran down his face. As he stood, the crowd was ecstatic. Cheers, whistles, and applause filled that little country auditorium. When he lifted his eyes, he couldn't believe it. The old teacher still sat with arms folded. The musician took a deep breath and announced he was going to play it one final time. Silence filled the auditorium. He walked to the piano and sat down. He began. This time, there was nothing in the world but him and his instrument. He became one with the piano. The crowd was forgotten. He was lost in pouring himself completely into a lifetime of effort and practice. He barely noticed when he finished. He sat limp on the piano bench. He was drenched with sweat. He stood on shaky legs, bowed to the audience who could not give enough cheers, shouts, and whistles. Before he lifted his head to see what his old teacher would do, he looked inside himself, and he knew he could not play it better. He had given everything he had. It was his best performance of his entire life. As he lifted his eyes, he saw the old teacher smile, and slowly the old teacher stood and began to clap his hands in acknowledgement of the best performance his prodigy had ever given you see, the crowd could not discern the difference between a good performance, a great performance, and a once-in-a-lifetime performance. But the man in the balcony could tell the difference. The musician had more in him, and the man in the balcony knew that he had more, and he demanded that he give him his best. I came to tell you in this meeting today, someday, you and I will stand before the man in the balcony. And trust me, he will know what kind of performance we have given in our lifetime. It's not your applause that matters the most. It's not your acclamations or your affirmations or your accolades that's going to matter. When I stand before him, I just want to know, have I given it my best? Let's take a moment right now and ask God to help us to make a decision in this service today that from this day forward, I will give my best performance of my life. Hallelujah. You may be seated. When you read this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews is a glorious book. It's a book about better things. I'm not here to preach the genre of the book. But it was a struggling moment in the infantile church. These people had been raised in Jewish synagogues with Jewish overtures. And they had been brought into the church. There was some kind of movement, magnetic draw to pull them back into. And so the writer of Hebrews, whoever you select it to be, I choose Paul, you may choose Apollos or others. But whoever it is, the writer begins to let them know that why would you go back 
when you have already been a part of the best. And he begins to present issue after issue, priesthood, tabernacle, covenant, on and on he goes, that this is better. And when he decides to conclude his entire speaking engagement, he begins to tell them that this that you're involved with has a gallery attached to it. There are people that somehow can see what we're doing. They can observe. There is this great cloud of witnesses all around us and they can observe what we're doing and they're cheering you on and you may feel alone and you may feel forsaken and you may feel that no one truly knows where you're at but if you had sight in the fourth dimension of life that we will probably experience when we get to heaven. If you could see that other dimension that Paul saw caught up to heaven. When he talked about the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height. If you could get out of your third world dominion, dimension and see the fourth. You would see that there are people saying, come on, get up. You can make it. There's a gallery. There are the spirits of just men made perfect that surround us today. Oh, they're there. They're looking down. They're rejoicing right now because they know you're on your way. And if you just keep running, you're going to make it. Lay aside every weight and just keep running. You're on your journey. I don't want to belabor this point. I've got other things I want to say, but I will say that they're in that fourth dimension, in my opinion. And we live in a three-dimensional world. And every now and then you bump that fourth dimension. And those are the moments that we can't articulate or explain or talk about. Paul said that the length, breadth, depth, and height, four dimensions. We live in a three-dimensional world. I'm just convinced that heaven will be a different dimensional world than we experience. And I think there are moments in our Christian walk when we get up against it and we may step over the line just for a short period of time through a revelation or a dream or a touch of God or a service or something. You, all you know is you're going somewhere you've never been before. You've broken through the ceiling. You're on the same path. But you're, oh, I wish somebody could do it today. I wish somebody could step across the line into the fourth dimension today and things could happen. It explains your life. It makes you at peace with your failures. It solves the dilemmas of your life. It answers the lingering questions that haunt you in your lifetime when you step into the fourth dimension. Oh, I wish we could see it today. I wish for just one brief moment that fourth dimension could be revealed and we would see that gallery of men and just spirits Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's pray the Lord open some eyes today to see some things in the fourth dimension. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You may be seated. So, there are many people unnamed in the scripture, obviously. And they are in this gallery. They are the spirits of just men made perfect. Some time ago I... Made it a point in my personal study. Didn't intend to preach on it. it. That's so often the case. What you study, you end up preaching. But that was not my original intent. It was to try to comb the Bible and go through the Bible and find these little known people that had incredible effect upon their world. 
people that weren't blue bloods and people that, and, and, and I don't say that derogatorily, but people whose family was not in the church, people who, who, who came from nowhere and achieved things in the spirit, not because they had an advantage or not because they had a platform or not because they had somebody that could help them or assist them or give them a one-up a moment, but they started from scratch. They had no father in this, no mother in this, no beginning in this, just, just raw and, and beginning. And I, I wanted to find people like that. And I began to comb the Bible and I began to do a series on it and I have people here from my home church. I apologize to them for any redundancy here today. They've heard everything that I've, I've thought of through the years. But the people like this, here, here, here's an example of, of, of an obscure person. His, we don't even know his name. He is simply referred to as the servant. It was a moment in a critical war. Israel is fighting. Absalom is attempting to take the kingdom from his dad. David is running. David is writing songs about it. Psalm 3 was written from the, from the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem while, while he left his concubines there and Absalom overruns it and, and, and he's got 10,000 people with him. David rises early in the morning probably to Joab's chagrin and David leaning on an elbow scratching out a song begins to pen the third psalm. Oh Lord how are they increased against me? And he begins to write songs about the I will not be afraid though 10,000 of people come against me and David begins to write of this moment it was a cataclysmic moment it was an argumentative moment in the kingdom it was a deciding moment for the future of a thousand years on the table David said well when you go to war with Absalom don't harm him and you remember the story it's it's well remembered second Samuel 18 is where it's found and this servant is not named there are all kinds of unnamed heroes in the Bible. And this man gives me great insight because he would not violate the king's word. Even though his immediate superior chided him for not doing so. We need this heroic stand in some churches in America today. When pastors try to weaken our standards, when they try to throw away time-tested, well-worn lifestyles, when they bring Hollywood into our homes, when they encourage us to go to professional sporting events, there needs to be somebody that rises up and says, hold on just a moment. I heard the king say, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. His word trumps your word. I will listen to the word of the king. Joab, you may be seated. Joab, you may be the general, but I just want you to know that the word of the king overrides you. This unnamed servant, I'm convinced, is in the gallery today. He's observing. And he's cheering for you every time you take a strong stand to hold on to the word of the king. I believe that. Another brief example. I'm just giving you a format to where I came from. A man by the name of Boaz. In this case we have his name. Boaz lived during the time of the judges. This half millennial period of time is intriguing to me. There are so many winds and crosswinds and I'm going to get into a couple of things here that 
I may take some heat for afterwards. It's okay. If you disagree with me, some of these preachers will probably have a different opinion. But this is just my opinion. I don't say I'm right. But in my opinion, the book of Judges is not linear. I think we make many mistakes when we make everything in the Bible linear. It's, it's on, a, on a time sequence. Classic point is Genesis chapter 11, speaking of Nimrod, building the Tower of Babel. We read that and all of the ensuing uh, tragedy occurred there with nations and languages and all of the things that we like to talk about and the dissemination of the families of the earth uh, throughout a, 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 a Tangia world. And, and we, we look at that. But, but let, me, let me just tell you something. When you turn the page to Genesis chapter 12, it is not sequential. Abraham was alive when they were doing the Tower of Babel. As a matter of fact, according to uh, Jewish scholars, he was 48 years Years old. We're not talking about Nimrod and then Abraham. We're talking about two people side by side. And God said, this is what I think of Babylon. This is what I think of the Tower of Babel. Give it 11 verses and show my disapproval. And this is what I think of Abraham. Give him 14 chapters and show him the father of the faithful and three world religions and the greatness accompanied with it. Everything is not sequential. You may be seated. In the book of Judges, I personally think it is regional. It's not critical to salvation. If your pastor teaches it's sequential, then he's right. I mean that sincerely. But I, th I think it's regional. When you read the book, this almost half millennial period of time known as the Judges, it starts in the north with Deborah and Barak. Then the next ensuing, it moves to the middle of the country. And there's Gideon and the famous stories of him. And then you move across the river to the two and a half tribes. And there we find Jephthah, and so you're on the eastern flank. And then the book closes out on the western flank. This is inescapable. You can, you can argue whether it's linear or sequential uh, or regional, but the fact is the sequence of the book is as I'm telling you. And I, I wonder sometimes, and these are the ponderings of my mind that get me in trouble sometimes, but I wonder sometimes about these spirits that live in those areas. The, this Bible talks about spirits of just men. I wonder if these spirits live on. I wonder if legacy is deeper and more under, uh, uh, more, more uh, misunderstood than, than we give it credit for. That, 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 that in the north, for example, you've got Deborah. And, and, and she's a very powerful woman. She's a very godly woman, but very strong. And Barak is afraid to do things by himself. I wonder, long after she's gone, if the nation is still intimated in that area with strong women. Because you see strong women arise, not in the south, but always in the north. You see this spirit that has been left behind you see this legacy if you please that has i know this is uh, way out there but but just hear me you got to be careful what kind of spirit you entertain you got to be careful what kind of spirit you live because the next generation is going to pick up on it this is not even my sermon be seated so whether i'm accurate or not there's a lot of coincidences if I'm not. Because you have strong, even on the negative side, Jezebel rises in the north. All, all of these strong-willed women rise in the north, much like Deborah did. When you go to the east side, Jephthah, his manner of appeasing God in thanksgiving for the victory, of offering whatever comes out of his house, it, 
it reflects the nations around them and the two and a half tribes that chose to receive their inheritance on the eastern side. It, it's reflective of that. Track it on down, on and Sihon and the other ones that were there. Uh, this, this is not even my sermon. I'm off on a tangent. But, but you'll see that. It's, is it a coincidence that, that in the west, the lone wolf judge, Samson, that never led an army, that never organized a group of men, that fought every single battle by himself, is it a coincidence that when David steps out on the battlefield against that people for the first time he does it alone just like Samson I don't know how this all affects us but I do know that there are people watching and I do know that you're not running this journey by yourself and I do know that there's a ceiling we could break if we could ever get into that dimension my God have mercy if we could get in that fourth dimension today This is, you may be seated. This is reflected in the life of Boaz. Boaz is one of these unseen characters. For all of you that think the book of Judges is linear, you're going to have to deal with one major issue. And that major issue is that last event that produced a carnage of 65,000 Israelis dead, where the man took his concubine, whom According to the law, he could have divorced, but he didn't. He chose to maintain his relationship with her. A lot of things to be said there. But he takes her, and then she's abused. And, and, and the tribe of Benjamin, which is in the central part of the, of the country, and, and they abuse her, and he sends the 12 parts, and they go to all of that. That whole ensuing deal <laughs> happened at the beginning of the book. That's not my imagination. If you check it, it clearly says Phineas was the high priest. Phineas, the son of Eleazar. And so that event did not happen at the end of the 450 years. It happened at the beginning of the 450 years. My whole point is sometimes we have to step back and say, wait a minute, I need to read this carefully and make sure I've got it the way that it really is. And my point to you is, in the middle of all of that, when things were upside down and weren't going well, there was one man in the bullseye center of everything that went on. If you'll track that 65,000 people dead, if you'll track the war, if you'll track what happened, and the tribe of Benjamin 12 miles from where the battle happened was a man by the name of Boaz and Boaz said I don't care what's happening around me I don't care if the world is crumbling I don't care about gay rights I don't care about abortion I don't care I'm going to live according to the word and whatever the word says that's how I'm going to do it the word says, take your shoe off and put it down. And I'm taking my... Oh, God, give us people. Give us people who will make up their mind. I will live according to this word. Shake somebody's hand and say, keep living for God. He stands as a beacon to all of us to keep living right in a crazy, out-of-control country. Struggling with gay rights. Struggling with abortion. Not we, they. Struggling with morality. Struggling with atheism, Brother Mead. Struggling with things that are pulling them down. 
the spirit of Boaz in the gallery today can keep you straight in a world that is crumbling. He is in the gallery today. He is one of those spirits of just men made perfect. He is one of them that's saying, run on. And whatever you do, don't surrender the simple word of God. Live it exactly as it's written. Today I bring you a simple story out of the word of God of one of these people that is one of the most amazing characters in the Bible. Today I'm bringing you the story of Obed Eden. History says in the days of Joshua, the ark of God was kept in their midst, but there was a required three-quarter mile distance to be kept. It says it in different terms, but that's the equivalent for your modern understanding. For three to four hundred years... After they crossed the Jordan, the ark was kept at a place called Shiloh. And then it was taken in battle by the Philistines, and they held on to it for seven months. It went from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, and then they said, we've had enough of this. You probably remember the reasons why. They put it on a cart, sent it home. New cows hauled it eight to ten miles to a place called Beth Shemesh. At some point, it was moved to Nob. And it was there that Saul had Doeg, the Edomite, slaughter the 85 priests and all their families. And then the ark was moved from Nob and taken to a place called kerjath Jerim. It was there that David found it 70 years after the defeat of Israel at Shiloh. And David decides he's going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Little did he know the domino effect of that decision and how it would affect other people. So David goes. The first time he went, he took 30,000 troops. After the debacle of the death of the man that reaches up, Uzzah, that touches it, the next time David went, he took 1,000 priests. He changed his tune. And the first time he went, the ark was on the cart. You know the story. The ark stumbled. The man reaches out and dies. Interesting statement there. It says David was afraid of God that day. Unusual statement for David and his relationship with God. At that moment, there was such confusion and utter fear. They were afraid to do anything. So a short distance away was the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. And David in his panic said, take it there. And leave it until we figure out what to do. And so the Ark of the Covenant that had been moved and transferred and had a long, rich, storied history comes to rest in the, in the living room, so to speak, of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. It was there for roughly 90 days, three months. That three months period not only changed his life forever, but it changed the entire country. It changed the entire history of his downline. And we can track it for 240 years. That one decision. Obed-Edom was a man that had come back with David. After he made his western thrust into the Philistine camp. In his attempt to bring them under subjugation. 
And David went north to a place called Gath. And it was there in Gath that he found some men. There were some famous men that came out of this. Ittai the Gittite was one of them. But, but this man by the name of Obed-Edom had lived his life in a place outside the presence of God. He had lived in a place that there was virtually no chance of him ever being a part of the kingdom of God. He was away in a back corner section that would never be reached by the hand of God. And somehow through the fortitude of David's will and the industry of his army he comes and 600 men make up their mind we don't want to live here. We're going to follow David. And they left and they came back to the land. And Obed-Edom was one of them. I like him today because he represents so many of you spiritual ninjas. He represents so many of you that are zealots because you weren't raised on a Pentecostal pew. You didn't go to sleep with your head on a pallet. You didn't learn how to sing the songs of Zion. You came from crack houses. You came from alcoholic homes. You came from places that you didn't deserve to ever have a chance. But somehow, somehow, and you're here today and you're thinking this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's what Obed-Edom did. I don't know how we could relive the moment. Whether he was standing on his porch when they approached. Or whether he was out back milking the cow. Somehow they said, Obed, we need you to... Take care of this ark. Sure. And the Bible says. The Bible says that God blessed his life. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. For three months he lived in God's blessing. After being raised in Gath. That was hedonistic. Idolistic. Nothing about God. And for the first time in his life, he is enjoying the presence of God. He went from nowhere to God's glory. He had no heritage. He had no family. He had no beginning. He had no start of an identity. He came from Gath, much like many of us here today. And that's why we act the way we act. That's why we dance when those third generation Pentecostals sit back and eat Tic Tacs. That's why we run and jump and buck when they sit back and thumb through their Facebook account during service. Because we're from Gath and we don't have a right to be here. But thank God he found me. And the... that's why we shout. There's a whole lot of Obed-Edoms in this house today. Maybe see. So David figures it out. So he's got the ark in his house for 90 days. David figures it out. And we did it wrong. We got to get the priest. Got to get on the shoulder. So David makes the journey. Now, this is the way I see it. It's about, I don't know, seven miles or so from where he took it. And... The Bible says every 10 paces to sacrifice. So I, I understand there's a whole lot of things that can be. But I'm going to take it at literal value. I'm going to take it that it was seven miles, and every time he took 10 steps, he sacrificed. That would equate to some 3,500 times. Don't ever get tired of doing the same old things over and over. 
David, we've already done this 2,976 times. Do we need to do it again? Yep, we need to do it again. We need to just keep on doing what we're doing because we're headed for a city. And when we get there, we're going to have an ark and we're going to have the glory. And it may be tedious and it may... Oh, somebody help me today. I worry about people that it always has to be stupendous. It always has to be fantastic. It always has... Thank God for just going to church. Thank God for just praying. Thank God for... Where's Jess? Is Jess here? Jess Parker, where are you at? Is Jess? Jess? You, you may be seated. This is, where are you, Jess? This is what got your kinfolk. They had to have the Metro Golden Meyer Lions one week. And they had to have the wrestling team the next week to get a crowd. And you found out from Brother Terry that just preached the word. That's how you build a church. Because if you're not careful, that's what can happen when you get into that mindset. So they brought it back. The Bible lets us to know that on the way, they sang Psalm 68. When he got to the door of the tabernacle, he sang Psalm 24. When he entered the tabernacle, he sang Psalm 96. Then they sang 105. And then they sang 106. And David said, I'm going to set up the kingdom. It's been 497 years. 450 years under the judges. 40 years under Saul. 7 years under my kingdom. 497 years, it's time to set up a kingdom that the world will see how great our God is. And when that moment came and David's bringing the ark, he didn't take off his, his, his throne to be impressive to the people. He didn't take off his outer garment because of that. David had an understanding. How can I dance as a king in the presence of the king of kings? He's the king of kings. This doesn't fit. I hold no title in his presence. I have no... Not in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. All right. So, David said, we're going to set up our kingdom. It's going to be a glorious kingdom. And it was. He set it up. There were 38,000 Levites. There were 24 courses of priests. There were 4,000 singers. 288 musicians and 4,000 gatekeepers. Now, I don't know if they put a little paper up in the post office and said, this is tryout day. Not sure how they did it. But word went out that David's setting up his kingdom and we need volunteers. We need people who are willing to do things. And he began to ask for volunteers. I'm going to go to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16. And show you what happened to the man Obed-Edom. This man came from nowhere. Had never known the presence of God. And now for 90 days he has been in the presence of God. And he makes up his mind from this day forward. I will never live a day without being in God's presence. In 1 Chronicles 16, 4 and 5. They ask for somebody to just thank and praise the Lord. Obed-Edom sticks his hand up. He's the first guy. I'll do that. I would love to be on the thank and praise the Lord team. Good. You can do that. You don't have to have talent to do that. You don't have to be able to play an instrument to do that. 
great. Great. Point at Levites, record and thank and praise the Lord. That's, that's all you got to do. He said, I'm in. Sign me up. Thank you, Obed. All right, moving on now. You may be seated. They said, now we need somebody. Go down to verse 37 and 8, Mr. Soundman, media man. And they said, we just need somebody that will do everyday work. Rake the leaves, blow the parking lot, paint the white lines on the parking lot, clean the toilets, just, uh, just, just everyday work. Stop. Obed Edom's on his feet. I'll volunteer for that. Well, you already volunteered. I know. You know, I have a... Well, I'm hesitating because that's another man's pulpit. But I have a problem with some of this ministry concept. We had so many people doing nothing in churches that they began this thing of, well, you have a ministry. Hey, brother, would you help us fix the fence? I'm sorry, my ministry is bus ministry. What? That's not my ministry. Go get a life. Everything is your ministry. That's what I'm fixing to preach about. That's how you be the saint. Your pastor wants you to be. When you make up your mind, I don't care what they're doing, I'm in. I'm in. I'm trying to behave. You may be seated. Trying, trying to behave for all those preachers Brother Bass talked about that are not here today. Hallelujah. So he volunteers to thank and praise the Lord. He volunteers for the everyday work. In verse 38, they're going down the list. We need volunteers. They say, we need a porter. A porter's a janitor. Cleans toilets, sweeps floors, empties trash bags. Obed-Edom's first one on his feet. Hey, you got a porter right here. I'm fixing to be the best porter you ever saw. And they're like, man. Man. He's already volunteered for the first three things. Oh, he ain't near done yet. You're not going to throw anything out that he don't want to be right in the big middle of it. Because he's found what he's been looking for. And he found the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of his house. And his life has totally changed. You may be seated. So some of these people by this time are rolling their eyes. They're like, what's with this guy? What's with him? Give somebody else a chance. Put him down. Okay, he's on the thank and praise the Lord team. He's on the everyday work deal. He's on the porter. Okay. Now, we know he won't want this one, so we're safe here. And First Chronicles 15 and 18. They said, we need some people for the second degree choir. He's on his feet. That's me. Oh. Have you ever been in the choir? Nope. Are you soprano, alto, baritone? What? I don't know. Can you sing it all? Nope. But you don't know where I came from. You don't understand. I got to be there. I don't want to miss a blessing. I don't want one blessing to be missed. But, 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 but. But, 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 but. Let me tell you something. Obed, you don't understand. This is the second degree choir. You're only going to get to sing when the big bus goes on tour. When all the A-line musicians, Brother Hall, are gone. And it's the beginning people that don't know how to play very good. It's just, dun, dun, dun. He's like, I don't care. 
Sign me up. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be best. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to have a pat on the back because all I'm after is the blessing. I want the blessing of God in my life. I gotta hurry. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. I gotta. I gotta hurry. Okay. So he has signed up for thank and praise the Lord. He signed up for everyday work. Signed up for the port. He signed up for the second degree choir. Now they're they're kind of saying it quiet because they know he's gonna volunteer for everything. They're upset about it. And they said, uh, "And we need somebody." Now we we would really prefer if you know how to do this before you volunteer. We need some people that know how to play the harp. Hey, dude, do you even know what a harp is? Don't have a clue. Then why are you volunteering? Because I don't want to miss a blessing. You don't know where I came from. (laughs) I don't care what it is. If I just hold the harp for somebody else, if I just dust it off, if all I, I just got to be there. Read it. I think... Put 1521 up. There it is. You may be seated because I think you probably think I'm, I'm, I'm. No, look. When they volunteered for the harps. Obed-Edom said, I'll take that. He said, all right. Maybe he's busy enough now. Verse number 24. Put that up. He said, we need a doorkeeper. Sure enough. Guess what? I love keeping doors. That's one of my favorite things to do. Look, how are you going to do all this? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, you're not doing one thing at that church that I'm not in. I don't care if it's nothing more than keeping the door. This is how you become the sin your pastor wants you to be. He did it, friend. Doorkeepers. Sit down. I'm almost done with his volunteer work. I'm almost done with his volunteer work. One more. Verse 5, chapter 16. By this time there. They're punch drunk on Obed-Edom. They're just punch drunk. They're like, my God. He's volunteered for thanking praise the Lord every day. Work, porter, second degree, choir, harp player, doorkeeper. We got one more category, folks. He's like, aren't you going to wait and see what it is? Uh-uh. I don't care what it is. All they're doing is making peanut butter. I don't care. All they're doing is washing church vans. I don't care. All they're doing is cleaning out a closet in the Sunday school. I don't care. I don't care. You don't know where I came from. I'm not going to let one blessing slip through my fingers. With a deep, with a deep sigh, they say, Brother Gregory probably, they, they, they hated saying anything. You, you guys may be seen. All right, we're looking for volunteers to play on the psaltery. Just go ahead and put Obed Edom down. We know he's going to volunteer. So. We got you, brother. We got you. Have you ever played? No. I don't know anything about music. I can't read a lead sheet. I don't know anything about a circle, a circle of fifths. I don't know anything about majors and minors and diminished and, and augmented. I don't know any of that. I couldn't read a chord chart if you wrote it in, in, in Babylonian lingo. or, or I, 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 that, but, but, but I want to be a part of this psaltery. Obed Edom with harps. He said, I got to be there. Now, this is why. 
He volunteered for anything and everything and was involved in everything that went on in the church. Why? Because he was from Gath. And he was born without the potential of ever having a chance to know God. It was an act of Almighty God that put the ark in his house. And he found out what it was like. And he said, I will never live another day without this presence in my life. Never as long as I live. He was a servant. He was a doulos. The Greek word for servant is doulos. He was, you may be seen, he was in the mold of Abraham, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of David, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of Moses, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of Joshua, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of Paul, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of James, a servant of the Lord. In the mold of Jude, a servant of the Lord. Every great name in the Bible was signified by one single common denominator. They were a servant of the Lord. Every generation, every time period, every difference aside, all were servants of the Lord. I'm almost done. You may be seated. I'm almost done. Then came the most incredible moment. Incredible moment. Little paper goes up. It's Saturday. We're going to be choosing the gatekeepers of the city. These were incredibly important positions. Each man that was drawn by lot would be over a thousand men. It's very important. And so the Bible says they began to draw. The person in charge of the north gate, his job was to protect collections and supplies and commerce. The person in charge of the east gate, which is the prophetical gate Christ will enter when he returns, it was about entrance and passports and kings and queens. That's where they came. When the queen of Sheba, she came through the eastern gate. The west gate was the least desirable. It was the garbage gate, never closed. But it was still one of only four positions in the country. But the most coveted, the most amazing was the keeper of the south gate. The south was the gate that guarded the king's treasure. It was the most esteemed and coveted position in the land. And the drawing began. All the names are in the drawing. Don't get ahead of me. You probably already know where this is going. But Obed-Edom showed he could take care of God's treasure in his house. And so God said, I think I can trust you to take care of my treasure in my house. I worry about people who think they can take care of God's treasure in God's house, but they can't take care of it in their own house. That's where you prove. You start in your house and you move to the house of God. I don't know how big the crowd was. I don't know who all was there, but they began to draw names out. These porters would be over a thousand men with four men on duty at all times except this east gate which had six men on duty perennially and perpetually. The hand goes in and draws the lot for the eastern gate. Whoever this man is will have extreme honor because through his gate will enter kings, princes, and the royalty of the world. And with bated breath, the man announces the name. 
Shelemiah. And there is rejoicing in his family. He is humbled by this great honor to be the porter of the eastern gate. They draw the western gate, which is the least desirable, but still only one of four positions in the land. And they announce it will be Shepin Hosa. And he is thankful and his family is weeping with gratitude that their ancestor is lifted to such a high position. Now the north gate, the gate of commerce, the gate of productivity, finance. The hand goes in and comes out. And while peace and people listen carefully, Zechariah is announced. Once again, there is weeping and joyful, thankful hearts. One gate left, the most desirable. The one that every man in Israel covets more than anything else. And the hand goes in. And when it comes out, the man announces it is Obed-Edom. The man that came from nowhere. The man that didn't have any heritage in the land. The man that had nobody to support him or promote him. But the man who said, I have fallen in love. I have fallen in love with the presence of God. And I intend to spend my life being all around the church. That's how you be the saint. Your pastor wants you to be. Great story. You may be seated. Wow, what a story. What a story. 38,000 Levites. Wow, things are humming. 24 courses of the priests, 4,000 singers, 288 musicians. Wow, wow. Great story. If it ended right there, couldn't be any better than that, could it? And yet, as we journey on through the scriptures in 1 Chronicles 26, verses 4 through 8, guess what? This man has eight sons. Bishop, all eight sons. Become mighty men of valor. All eight. Now if it ended right there. That would be incredible. But the Bible specifically says. He had 62 members of his downline. And every one of the 62 members. Was a mighty man of valor. Go down to verse number 8. All of these of the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men for strength and for the service, were threescore and two. Sixty-two men came out of the loins of one man that fell in love with the presence of God. And God said every one of them was a mighty man of valor. You're going to tell me it's not worth it. You're going to tell me not to fall. I'm going to tell you if it's happening at the church, I'm there. I don't care if it's raking leaves. Passing out flyers, teaching a Bible study. I'm in. Great story. Wow. Would have been a great story if it ended with him. Would have been a great story if it ended with his eight sons. Would have been a great story if it ended with the 62 downline. But it didn't even end there. This is amazing, folks. 200. And 40 years later, Hezekiah says, we got to clean this temple up. This place is a mess. 
They've let all kinds of stuff go on around here. I need a volunteer. Jumps to his feet. He is a direct descendant of Obed-Edom. 240 years later, he so put it in his kids. He so put it in his grandkids that after two centuries, they're still saying, I'll be there. Pastor, you can count on me. You don't have to worry whether or not I'll be there. I've got this. How great was he? David wrote a song about him. Psalm 24 is a eulogy to Obed-Edom. David wrote, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That song was written by David to honor this man, Obed-Edom. The only competition you're facing today is you. Are you pleasing the man in the balcony? Your life, your consecration, your witnessing, your Bible study is the man in the balcony pleased with you. Not what the crowd's doing. But the man that knows every thought and intent of your heart. Are you pleasing him? Could we take five minutes out of this service to just make our way to the front and lift our hands and say, God, whatever else I do in life, I have got to please the man in the balcony. That's how you become the saint. Your pastor wants you to be.